Welcome to the BioCentury This Week podcast special edition. I am Simone Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief at BioCentury, and today I'm joined by James Sabry, Global Head of Pharma Partnering at Roche, and Mike Gilman, CEO of Arrakis. Last month, Arrakis and Roche signed a deal, Arrakis' first with a pharma, which gave Roche options to therapies Arrakis developed against a broad set of targets in all of Roche's therapeutic areas. Arrakis gains an upfront payment of $190 million and is eligible for milestone payments and royalties that could extend into billions if regulatory and other conditions are met. Arrakis was founded in 2015 in what is now a hot area, RNA binding small molecules. So far, Arrakis has raised $113 million in venture financing, including a $38 million A round in 2017 and a $75 million B round last year. Mike and James, welcome. Let me start by asking both of you, how did this deal start? Who courted whom? And James, were you specifically looking for an RNA technology? Well, it's interesting, Simone, and, and, and Mike, so great to be online with you. I feel like we're just sitting in the living room here and, and having a chat about the deal, which, which was some time in coming. And there's a couple of really interesting lessons. We first started talking to you, Mike, back in December of 2017. And you said something really important at that point. You said, we're not open for business in, in terms of partnering, that you really wanted to spend some time building the technologies. And I really respect that because one thing that I often see in companies is that they come and talk to us far too early, really. I mean, it's, it's, it's as though they get financing series A, they've got three people in the company and they're already starting to chop with us. And I feel like going, why don't you build the value here? Build, you know, do what you were designed to do, which is really build innovative products. And it's one thing that biotech companies are really well suited for. If you want, we can talk about how we could work together in the future, but there's really not much to do until there's something there. And this is also a plus for you. So Mike, maybe it'd be helpful for you to talk about what was it like in December when Roche first reached out to your CSO and was thinking, let's try to do a deal in this area. Well, yeah, I mean, there were sort of two reasons why we politely declined. You were polite. I mean, this is <laughs> this was the beginning of a relationship, so you were polite. Yeah, yeah, you don't say no. You don't say no to those things. <laughs> and partly, one thing that sort of worked in our favor is that, you know, a little bit of mystery is just a very alluring thing. Like, people just kind of kept coming back. But really, there were two issues. One was we had to figure out how to do it first, right? Like we were trying to do something that many, certainly many of the investors that we met with when we first hit the road told us was just absolutely impossible. So when you say it, Mike, you're talking about make small molecules bind RNA? Yes, exactly. Finding small molecules that selectively bind RNA with high affinity and intervene in the biological function of those molecules. I'm not going to say no one had ever done it before because molecules had been identified through their biological activity that turned out later to act by binding with RNA. And, and in fact, Roche is developing just such a molecule currently for SMA. But the idea that you could essentially treat RNA as if it were a protein and adapt the tools of small molecule drug discovery that have been developed proteins and, and, and do it for RNA it was a hard problem and it took us a while to figure out how to do it. And we tried a lot of things that didn't work. And so, you know, number one, there was no point in talking to partners until you were confident you could do it. But then number two, it doesn't make sense to start selling off parts of yourself until you have a pretty good idea of what you have. And that was the other issue for us. Like we didn't know whether this was not going to work at all. 
whether it was going to work on a very small number of RNA targets, in which case you probably don't want to be giving a lot of them away, or whether it's going to work broadly. And once we realized that the situation we were in was the latter, that we'd screened like two dozen RNAs and had gotten hits to everything, then actually partnering became imperative because we quickly realized we couldn't possibly exploit the full output of our platform. And if at the end of the day, the reason we're all doing this is we want to see as many medicines as possible get to patients. And so the way you do that, if you're a little company like us, is you leverage the capabilities and the capacity of a partner like Roche. So Roche comes knocking on the door, right? Presumably you've got other suitors. What are the sweet nothings they whispered in your ear, Mike, that that made you pursue that one? What, what are difference makers for a company like yours at that situation that will make you go in one direction? Well, so we, we actually made sort of no outbound calls at all. So by the time, but we'd gotten a lot of inbound interest. And so by the time we were ready to partner, like we knew who was interested and we could even sort of calibrate their level of interest by how many times they pinged us. And Roche had stayed in regular touch with us. They were clearly interested in what we were doing. And I could not be happier that we ended up partnering with Roche. And I think that, I guess what I would say, and I I obviously would like to hear James's side of the story, is that there was just striking alignment from day one. This is exactly the, the point I wanted to make, is that when you said no in, in December 2017, what we did is we went back. I mean, what you were really trying to do, Mike, in some ways was write the rules for how do you create a, an RNA binding pharmacopoeia, right? And it's a totally different rule book yeah. than proteins. And we recognize that. There have been few one-offs and we were developing one of them. But what we really were attracted to about what you were doing was that you guys were going to write a rule book about how to do this multiple times. And during the time between that December 2017 and then meeting up in January of 2019 at J.P. Morgan, and then if you remember, you and I had dinner in Switzerland in May of that year, not only had you done what you needed to do, but Roche went back and really defined its strategy with regards to what were going to be the key elements going forward for us. And we looked at it in a time frame that was quite long. I mean, we're, we're interested in this area, not for two or three or four years, but for 10 years or 20 years, because we believe that this area will generate potentially products in multiple different areas. And so while you were going ahead and doing your work, there was also work that was going on in our background. So by the time we came together in January at JP Morgan, and then in May when you and I and the others had dinner in Switzerland, what you felt, that alignment you felt, was alignment that was the output of a lot of work internally within Roche in Switzerland about really defining this area and area we wanted to go into and recognizing that we couldn't do it ourselves and that we needed a partner. And that's when the dance really started was you know, around May of 2019 as we started to feel this real strategic alignment between the two companies. And that kind of alignment, Mike, for me, I always try to keep my antenna up for that because... It bodes well for what's going to happen after because you don't want to feel like one partner is dominant or is is running all the show. You want it truly to be a partnership of equals on the discovery side for something like this. And that's what we felt with you guys. One of the things that we talked about in the story we wrote is that 
the therapeutic areas of Roche weren't overlapping with the three programs, Mike, that you were developing internally. So how important a factor was that in terms of synergizing with them and who's going to do what? Well, I would tell you, and, and James, we should come back to that dinner in Basel uh, in yeah. May, because that definitely, first of all, was a fantastic dinner. And second of all, it really, for me, was sort of where the whole thing kicked off. We talked to yeah. a lot of people at JP Morgan in January of 2019, but it was really that dinner in Basel. And, and we might come back to this when we talk about kind of the impact of COVID, right? Because yeah. this is yeah. something that just doesn't happen now. It's a good um, point. It was that dinner in Basel in which James brought together senior members of his team and senior members of the PRED management team when it, I realized like, man, these people are serious about this. And that's really kind of what got things rolling. And coming back, Simone, to your question about targets, is this was always a very ambitious collaboration. The number of targets, we haven't disclosed the number of targets, but it's a big number. And one of the realizations that got me comfortable with this was realizing that there's more than enough targets to go around. We don't need to worry that much about giving up, quote unquote, giving up targets to Roche, because in the end, our interest is to see as many targets as possible prosecuted. What do we need? Three or four, maybe, to be heroes, right? And so two quick points to make here. One was, it was clear to me from day one that getting all those targets was important to the internal alignment at Roche, right? The fact that every therapeutic area had sort of a most wanted list and got to sort of throw their targets into this collaboration was really important in generating the broad support that this collaboration had at Roche. And, and that was really important. And then internally at Arrakis, I had to convince my own team to give up targets. I mean, in the end, Roche's wish list did not include our three most advanced programs. That's just coincidence, I think, really. But we had our own wish list after that. And a lot of those targets actually have gone to Roche. At the end of the day, our team got comfortable with that. But Mike, one thing that I really appreciated as we started this dance after our dinner was that we kind of created the, the deal design, which I think is an important first step in doing deals with companies, is to really think of yourselves as co-architects of what the deal would be. Is it going to be a small deal, a large deal? Is it going to be a deal where you do all of development and, and we come in later, you do part of development, you have options, et cetera, all those sort of elements of the deal itself, forget about economics, but just sort of deal design require you to think about it from your perspective and your board's perspective, not only from the point of view of what is best for the company, but what is best for patients. And we're thinking about it with that strategic homework that we had done in that year before of how it fits into what we were doing. And you're right, during that homework phase, we identified that there were targets across all therapeutic areas that we were interested in, and we were deeply interested in the general idea. So that when you and I got together with that team and had dinner, it was a generative discussion, if you remember. It was, hey, what, what about this? What about that? Can we do this together? And we were all thinking of what is in the best interest of patients here? How can we really work together so that Arrakis does what it does best, we do what we do best, and in the end, let's really try to work together so that we can get these molecules with the highest probability and the speed to patients that are going to need them. Because there are some targets in there that we can't drug the protein. And that's the real attraction to us about how that generative piece got started. 
So James, once you start negotiating with Arrakis, how much of the conversation was around operational aspects, like who does development until how far or, or so on, versus the finances? Well, there were three elements of what we started negotiating with Arrakis and, and Mike's team. One was that element, the scope and specifics of what was in the deal. But frankly, that had benefited from some pre-work that had allowed us to at least align in general terms. The second thing was due diligence, was actually a feasibility study and really ensuring that the technology worked as well as we thought it did. And of course, it performed beautifully. And then the final piece, an important piece, was to make sure the economics of the deal were right-sized for the vision of what this deal was. And for us, that was a very large deal. This is one of the largest deals we've done in such an early stage and is a reflection of our commitment to the area, our commitment to Arrakis. And there was a discussion that had at this size of a deal that happened with the Roche board where we were fundamentally the, the representative of Arrakis with the Roche board saying, here's why this company is going to be the best partner for Roche. And that kind of innovation on a large scale over a large period of time is something that we really enjoy doing. And we occasionally meet companies that can dance with us like this, but Mike, you're one of the few and one of the real reasons why we got excited. And I think that excitement helped us because there were some ups and downs, of course, as there always are, always. when you're negotiating finances. I mean, we both mm -hmm. have fiduciary responsibilities and it wasn't as though you put a term sheet in and we said, yeah, that's great. Or we put a term sheet in and you said, yeah, that's great. It went back and forth for a little while, right up to the end. But in the end, the enthusiasm about doing the deal and the work we had done on the architecture piece, I think allowed us to get through the financial aspects relatively smoothly. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, we settled on the structure very quickly. And I think the only thing that really sort of changed along the way in the structure was we sought ways to simplify it, to make the negotiation go more smoothly. You know, and then you find plenty of stuff to squabble about along the way, but vision is a kind of a fancy word, but there was a vision and it never, it never wavered. Was there a point where it nearly went south? And if so, how did you get past that? No, I don't For, think so. I don't um, think there was. I mean, we had, we had, James um, sees it differently. <laughs> no, no, I don't think there was. We, we often have deals that, that go south in a major way and we have to decide and the company has to decide, is that a fatal movement into the into southness or is it something you can resurrect we never had the magnitude of disagreement on fundamentally what we wanted to do that can happen sometimes in deals and i i go back to what mike was saying i think that a lot of this and maybe this is a good discussion to have in light of where we are right now a lot of this had to do with high level architecture and co-creation of the deal and then commitment to that as we went through economics, as you went through diligence. I think that's right. And, you know, the, when you do these deals, and, and I haven't done nearly as many as James has, but the ones that I have done have been sort of like existential for my companies. It's very easy to get distracted by the, by the weeds. Yep. There's a lot of detail in these agreements and a lot of lawyers get involved who have a lot of opinions about those details. And if I've learned anything along the way from doing these things over the years, it's that you just got to kind of keep your eye on the ball, right? You yeah. just have to remember what it is you're trying to accomplish in this overall collaboration and not get distracted by the various sort of bright, shiny objects that yeah. um, could land on your desk. 
And what we didn't know, Mike, when we started was that the latter part of the contract negotiation would go on virtually. Let's get to the coronavirus part of yeah. this. Talk a little bit about what it was like to finalize this deal, but also you'd set out some terms and did the deliverables change because of the unknowns related to this and when can you get in labs and, and that kind of thing. Maybe you can, both of you, address that. I guess I can start. We are pretty far along by the time everything you know, got locked down. And importantly, the deal teams had met face-to-face and so the relationships were established. The Roche team was planning to fly to Boston the week of March 16th for three days of face-to-face negotiations on the contract. And as late as the previous week, they were still planning to come, but in the end they didn't. And instead we negotiated by Zoom as we're talking now. And I'll tell you, that went remarkably well. And in some ways it was more efficient. And and I think in two ways. One is that, you know, for our face-to-face negotiation, we had set aside three days, three full days for it. We actually completed the Zoom negotiation in a day and a half. You know, had we been doing it in person, we would have filled three days. We would have, yeah. <laughs> we would have found <laughs> stuff to argue over, you know. Now, here's an interesting thought, days. Mike. So we agree, and I, was, I remember mentioning this to many people, that the negotiations seemed to be more efficient virtually. But we benefited from the fact that we had met face-to-face so many times beforehand. And what we're doing now is we're starting deal discussions and that deal architecture piece that we talked about virtually. Yeah. And it it's helps harder. if you know it, yeah. it is harder. It helps if you have a personal relationship with the CEO. And, and so this helps if you have people in your team on the pharma side who've been in the industry a while, who get to know all the CEOs and the venture capitalists. And so that's helping us a bit. But I, we don't have much choice. We have to do it virtually. But I echo what, what Mike said, that it went extremely well. And, and the contract is always the complex part of a negotiation, right? It's, the, it's when part A leads to part C, leads to part Z, leads to blah, 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 blah. And you... You really have to pay attention to it. And it went very well. And we ended up closing, signing. And to answer right on question schedule, about, by the way, right? We signed yeah. right on schedule. And here's the other important piece. And my, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. It never occurred to us that COVID-related operational changes that Arrakis would have to deal with, because by the way, we're dealing with the same thing, would change the economics or change the deal. That was our commitment. We committed to the deal. We know that you guys will perform with us as a collaborator. And if it takes three or four months for you guys to get back into the lab, so be it. Yeah, although I will note that the force majeure language got rewritten in the last, yeah. last couple of <laughs> well, weeks. Yeah, so that, so that has to do with, as you point out, there are a lot of attorneys involved yeah, and they'll put in yeah, that yeah. kind of protective language. But yeah. at least from the, the personal relationship, Mike, that you and I have and the teams have, this won't last forever and scientists will be able to get back into the lab. Yeah, and I'll tell you, Simone, the other thing that I found really surprising and that I think helped is is that because everyone was working from home, when we had these video negotiations, we were negotiating with people sitting in their kitchens or their living rooms or their home offices. It created kind of a weird sort of intimacy about the process that you would not have if you were, you know, sitting in a 20th floor conference room at a law firm. And getting these deals done, it requires a lot of empathy, right? It requires a lot. You really have to figure out how to see every issue from the other side. 
you know, these negotiations can become adversarial, but the successful ones are not. The successful ones are cooperative. And this sort of intimacy, in a way, I think it really helped. helped. And we're noticing that in other forums as well, when we're having teams get together, that there is this interesting virtual intimacy that happens, both internally and, and with other companies. Mike, what are your thoughts on the capital markets and how this affects how you see now building this company because of the, at least on the, in the broad side, the capital markets are pretty choppy. We've seen a lot of capital rotate out of the public sector. Venture guys seem to be doing well. They're building their funding. They're getting their funds built. And so I'd be curious as to how you see it from your perspective. Well, the good news for us is we don't have to for a while, thanks to exactly. the $90 million. Yeah. Right. For- our bank account uh, last month, which is great because, you know, at the end of the day, all we want to do now is just put our heads down and get some work done. That's what we'll do. Now, having said that, you know, the best time to raise money is when you don't need it, right? So, you know, this is actually a good time for us to be getting out and telling our story to investors, which we are um, going to get out there. Uh, you know, my own view of the market, I guess, is that startups are still getting funded. I've not seen any attenuation in the pace at which venture-backed companies are, are getting started and funded. And, you know, and that's because the venture capital firms have already raised their money. They have to put it to work. It's no good for them to sit on it. I think maybe some investments are, are, are getting shelved, but, but, but generally I think the good companies are getting funded. Public markets are going to be choppy for a while. And I just think my guess is it's just going to be story specific. If you've got a good story, you'll finance. Yeah. The interesting thing is that what we've experienced in the last five or six years, and and you guys are part of this, is not only have we had an economic boom in biotech, a lot of capital, I mean, unprecedented amounts of capital moving into the sector. But at the same time, there's been a technological boom as well, right? So we're starting to see real advances in gene therapy, cell therapy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's created real value. It's not just virtual value. This is real value. And sometimes those curves are in sync and sometimes they're out of sync. You know, I remember when Genentech got founded in 1976, it was a pretty crappy capital market. And yet the technological cycle was booming because people were figuring out how to manufacture proteins as therapeutics. But now we have two in sync and we're still kind of in that place. And that for me is very exciting because it means that there's a real opportunity to, to change what the pharmacopoeia looks like and move beyond small molecules that target proteins and antibodies that target proteins to these new forms of therapy, RNA-based therapies, RNA-directed small molecules as Arrakis is building, gene therapy, cell therapy. These are likely to have, over time, some really important effects in terms of pioneering medicines for patients. So, so James, let me end this because we're almost out of time. By going back to what you said at the beginning, which was, it's really important not to do a deal too soon. But now with choppy markets and so on, companies may be under more pressure. So do you think the COVID-19 and the economic landscape right now changes how small companies should think strategically? You spoke to me before about equity deals are better than licensing ones for them on the whole. The companies out there are listening to this and how should they think about navigating this landscape? Let me just make a few comments and I'll hand it over to Mike who's closer to what it's like to be in a small company. From my perspective, the focus of every small biotech company should be on developing unique and powerful therapies that are pioneering, that are not just me too therapies, but are pioneering in the way that they could affect the treatment and management of disease for patients. Now, 
how you do that strategically is the really important job of a CEO when they, when they get involved in these companies and, and the subtlety of when to finance and when to do partnerships. So it's, it's hard for there to be a rule about partnering early versus partnering late. Mike had the luxury to spend some time building his technology. It may well be that a company similar to Arrakis in potential in this environment may not feel quite as comfortable with the current private markets, although as Mike pointed out, that may not be the case either, in which case they're gonna come and talk to us earlier. And we would just architect a different type of deal. I think each one kind of has its own flavor to it, depending on the technology and the capital markets in which we and the small company find themselves in. Mike, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. Well, look, I mean, honestly, we were lucky. The timing here couldn't have been better for us because we are, an environment where cash is king. And so knowing that we are well-funded to discover and develop the drugs that we all want to develop without having to go back to the market, which if nothing else is just unpredictable, right? I mean, that's the problem. It's just unpredictable. You know, I can't really generalize from our situation. I'm grateful we got this deal done. We were lucky it happened when it did. As my dad always used to say, rich or poor, it's good to have money. For companies like us, time is actually our most valuable asset, right? We need time to solve problems. We need time to move programs forward. And, and that's what the cash buys you. It buys you time. It buys you talent and it buys you time. And those are the things that you need to really create value in our business. I think that's a great place to end this. Thank you both for a very interesting discussion. I want to be in the dinner at Basel when you get back together. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I hope you're both staying safe. We will certainly continue to follow this deal and all the other activities you do both at Arrakis and Roche. I think this is a really exciting area. And to our listeners, I will tell you that this podcast and all of BioCentury's coverage is available at our website at biocentury.com.